G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be back with you for another week. Absolutely, it is good to be back with you for another week, Dad. But I must admit, I, I, I didn't necessarily tell you that I was going to bring this up off the top of the podcast today, but... I'm sitting next to a different Chris Mackey this week in some ways. I think we do need to tell our <laughs> listeners about the the big thing that's happened over the last week. I could see this coming now. Okay. Well, last week you go, I was sitting here and, you know, we're having a chat and, you know, I was facing, you know, I'm a humble father, you know, just, <laughs> just humble Chris Mackey from Australia and... And this week, I, I sit next to an absolute superstar with a with a hole in one to his name in golf, Dad. So uh, a, a very big congratulations from myself on the podcast. Thank you, Rowan. I did get my first hole in one ever, and it was exciting to see this little white spot on the distant par three green, see it rolling along, and then suddenly there's no little white spot anymore. Thinking, could it be? <laughs> Walk up to the hole. There it is in the bottom of the hole. I tell you, it was a bit surreal, but uh, a joyful experience. Absolutely. Well, oh, I wasn't there to see it myself, but Dad, oh, I feel like I'm on the clock now. <laughs> I've, uh, I've got a little bit of time up my sleeve, but uh, I've got to get the hole in one now to match your uh, illustrious achievement so very well done dad but thought we better just mention that off the top today uh, and we've called today's episode illuminating emotional intelligence so dad this is something that came up recently at a conference that you went to in Brisbane last week so do you want to just let everyone know a little bit about that conference and, and where this topic came up Okay, well, it's wonderful to get back to face-to-face conferences, and this was the annual conference of the Australian College of Clinical Psychologists, and so right off the top, we had an opening keynote address, and one of the good things about conferences these days is they can have a hybrid element to it, so you can still have people zoom in for a keynote that we never would have done before, but this time the keynote address was from Daniel Goleman who's famous for that topic, after writing his book in 1995, Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ. And that sets up one of the themes of this podcast, of course, some of the benefits of emotional intelligence and how there are other things that affect our achievement, success in life, well-being, other than IQ that tends to be often emphasised in our school and education systems. But our emotional intelligence, as we'll describe, is just as important to our everyday life. Well, it's so true and potentially something that doesn't get spoken about as much. Like, for example, IQ is something that we hear about so often. And, and as you mentioned, like there's so much in our educational system that I think encourages cognitive intelligence. And, you know, that's great in many ways. But I think we could maybe do a little bit more at times to maybe emphasise also the importance of emotional intelligence, which is, you know, an intelligence just in itself. And I believe uh, uses even like the measurement EQ. So, you know, IQ, we talk about intelligence quotient. EQ is like, say, emotional intelligence quotient, I believe, Dad, is that correct? Yes, and so some people would dispute whether it should be given a, a fancy quantitative title, if you like, like EQ. But I think that the term was used, EQ and emotional intelligence, just to try and highlight the potential importance. Because what they've found is when people develop their emotional intelligence further or advantage naturally with emotional intelligence, empathy, certain social skills, it actually helps people in many areas of life. And we'll describe how this happens further. But the areas it helps, it helps our mental health, it helps our relationships, how we go at work, 
job satisfaction and, and leadership skills, all of these areas in life are affected by our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of others, which is the core of emotional intelligence. And there's been a real push in recent years as well, hasn't there, Dad? For example, to get some of this stuff into schools. Like it's maybe something that we'll speak a little bit more about next week in terms of emotional intelligence in children. But why do you think it is that there has been more of a push in recent years? Well, this was spelt out a lot by Martin Seligman when positive psychology was really getting going and especially going into the field of positive education. And the rationale for this was that when parents were asked what they wanted for their children from their education, rather than parents emphasising, oh, we just want them to get the absolute best marks they can, parents would tend to say, we want our children to be happy. We want them to grow up happy. And that led to the whole emphasis of positive psychology being introduced into schools through positive education, and we could also say wellbeing programs that other schools have introduced in different ways. It's to acknowledge that there's more to raising rounded young adults well-primed for life than just scholastic achievement. And so again, a lot of it coming back to the understanding of oneself and others. And there's a famous experiment about emotional intelligence, isn't there, Dad? And I think it would be worth mentioning here, because I actually remember learning about this experiment when I you know, had a, a very brief foray into psychology in year 11, Dad, and I heard it referred to as the marshmallow experiment. Could you tell us a little bit more about the marshmallow experiment? Okay, yes, this very famous experiment where children were led into a room and there was a marshmallow, say, on a plate, and the children were told, well, there's a marshmallow, but tell you what, you can either have the marshmallow now, but if you're prepared to wait for a few minutes, then you can have two marshmallows. And what they found is that the children who are able to resist eating the marshmallow, which was about two-thirds, it was just in the majority, those children who resisted did better later in life, in early adult life, in things like work, school and socially. Amazing that just by showing that bit of self-regulation, which is one of the components of emotional intelligence, just by showing that self-regulation, they were better off later in life. And what was interesting is Daniel Goleman described that that experiment has been repeated in New Zealand in relatively recent times where children aged four to eight years were followed up. They had about a 1,000 children. And what they did is they, again checked whether children could resist having that first marshmallow. They'd wait a few minutes for the second marshmallow. And what they found decades later is that those children had a better income, better health, less time in jail. And so they were showing greater success in life on these objective kind of measures. And what was also interesting is those children who later developed the capacity to resist taking that first marshmallow like they developed it later on, say by eight years old, when they didn't have that capacity at four years old, the ones who developed that capacity a little bit later on, up to eight years old, did just as well later on, which gives a hint that these kind of capacities can be developed. They can be learned or they can be encouraged. So I think that's one of the themes that we're looking at here. If it makes a difference in life and if it partly can be learnt, well, it's worth putting more effort into developing those capacities. Well, I think that's a really good point, Dad. And it's an interesting one because, like, I remember first hearing about this experiment and it wasn't even necessarily obvious to me exactly how it related to, for example, emotional intelligence. But there seems to be this real notion of 
kind of short-term desires versus almost like long-term gains in a way. It's this, like, I imagine when, you know, the kids were, were staring at the marshmallow and they were facing the option of, of eating it now or potentially waiting and getting more. Like, the emotions that they would have been going through in, in some ways would have been strong emotions, but they would have been almost these short-term emotions based around, you know, desire and temptation and a very short-term want. But it seems to me that the results of that study suggest, like the implications of the ones uh, who waited for their extra marshmallow doing better in life, the implication of that seems to be that if we can almost avoid our short-term emotions, if we can avoid these kind of short-term temptations and have a bit of perspective over what would be kind of better in the long term, like that seems to be a real central component to what emotional intelligence is. Yes, very much so. And so where there's a difficulty, it used to be almost a cliche, if people were getting into difficulty in a range of areas of life, the expression would often be used, people having a low frustration tolerance. And as we'll talk about later, it's partly about the interplay between our frontal lobes so our prefrontal cortex, that very mindful, most evolved aspect of the brain, which helps for mindfulness, self-awareness, checking our behaviour, reflecting on our behaviour, learning from mistakes, guiding ourselves with executive function, we call it, directing ourselves, planning and reviewing our behaviour, compared to the activity of the limbic system, the fight and flight kind of reactions. So self-control is an important part of emotional intelligence but also that's just one part of it. There are other aspects as well. Well, let's get into what those aspects are because I feel it really helps to almost break down emotional intelligence into its components. Like when you look at it in, in its parts, it seemed to make a lot more sense to me anyway, Dad. So we might go through them all together and then we might double back over and go through them one by one. So the four components of emotional intelligence are self-regulation, as you mentioned, self-awareness, awareness of others or empathy, and managing relationships. So, Dad, let's maybe start with self-awareness because it strikes me as maybe a bit of a tricky one in some ways in terms of self-awareness. Could you just give us a little bit of an overview, I suppose in a, in a psychological context, what is self-awareness? Okay, well, self-awareness has a number of aspects itself. And a first one would be understanding our own emotions. And that means understanding our full range of emotions, both positive emotions or uncomfortable or painful emotions, but also understanding our personal strengths and weaknesses, and also understanding how our actions might affect other people. Because if we cover those range of things, we're going to have an idea of what's most important to us in terms of our values or our interests that will help us pursue what's most important to us in life. Understanding our emotions helps guide us at the time, how we might respond to any particular situation. And understanding the impact of our reactions on others helps manage our relationships. Well, the one that really interests me out of that is, for example, understanding our emotions. Like, that could strike me as something that could be very difficult. Like, how can we actually tell if we're self-aware in the sense of, like, I can think of times within myself, for example, I might be angry or you know, annoyed about something and it's not until maybe later on until I've actually really thought about it that I've thought, well, hold on, I'm maybe not angry. Maybe there's an element to which I'm, I'm hurt or you know, I'm feeling a little bit insecure about something in this situation or like there can be so many layers to our emotions. Like how can we get a sense that we do actually have an understanding on our emotions rather than, I suppose, guessing in a way? 
Well, a whole lot of it gets back to being open and reflective. And early on, we're going to learn from others. We'll be guided from the time we're children. We'll be learning from parents about ways of naming emotions and getting feedback about how we're coming across, getting a sense of how we're reacting in a situation and how fitting that is for a situation from feedback from our parents, our teachers, coaches and others. But one of the main things is being open to that self-reflection and seeking feedback. Like we know that emotionally intelligent individuals, they're more likely to actually seek out and consider feedback and view that as potentially being constructive and helpful. And that might even include seeking out a mentor in different areas. So a lot of it is being open to that guidance and feedback and then continuing to learn over time. And so how important is it then to, for example, understand like the source of our emotions to be self-aware? Because like it strikes me as you, you know, you'd almost need to be a Zen master to have, I suppose, a full grasp over the, the source of your emotions at all times. Yes, well, actually, that's a core part of CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. And one of the most basic exercises in that is looking at how we feel in a particular situation. So we name our emotions and we rate their intensity we describe the situation that it relates to so we realise also it's not that this person said this and that made me feel angry. We also learn what comes in between. We learn about our own perspective or our own attitudes or our own way of looking at things and over a period of time we might pick up that there are some distortions in how we see things. If we're open to feedback we might get that sense of how we might be expecting a bit much of ourselves or others or maybe overreacting to a situation that might be frustrating but not terrible, so to speak. So a lot of it is about being reflective about our own thinking, checking that against the situation, but also being open to feedback from others in that process. Well, that element of being open to feedback seems to be such a central part of it. And like, so we mentioned self-awareness there. It seems to be a real part of the next component of emotional intelligence, which is self-regulation. Like what you were describing there, it seems to me that there was an element of self-awareness in it, but it is also about, I suppose, refining kind of that model over time, if that makes sense. It's about kind of checking, as you say, with others, but I imagine also with ourselves as well. Like it seems to me that such a big part of self-awareness is not being too rigid with that idea of self. And maybe it seems to me that self-regulation helps us maybe not be too rigid by being able to refine that idea over time. Yes, and so and this isn't necessarily easy, of course, because some of the more challenging situations that come up are when we're going to be feeling, say, angry or anxious. And as Daniel Goleman described it, it's when we can get caught up in a form of emotional hijack. So that sudden, reactive, emotional situation where we feel stuck and say with anger, it could be like a fight, flight, more fight kind of reaction. With anxiety, we can feel frozen. So part of it is learning to regulate our emotions partly by anticipating challenging situations coming up and picking up our feelings early, being guided by that self-awareness, being guided by that sense that we're finding a situation somewhat challenging, but also having various skills, various self-management skills, if you like, or various coping skills to help us manage with those reactions and help keep our frontal lobe switched on. Well, that seems such a, a, a central part, again, of what emotional intelligence is in terms of, I suppose, avoiding that idea of emotional hijack and also even to extend that principle a little bit. Like it seems, you know, if emotional hijack, that is one 
almost extreme example of that, it seems that maybe part of self-regulation and emotional intelligence more broadly is maybe also trying to avoid, say, let's call it emotional influence. Like like it's hijacked, but a much milder version where like we do still have some control, but at the end of the day, like it's maybe some negative emotions which are motivating our behavior in a situation. Yes, well, part of that is being aware of signals from our body that indicate to us when we're becoming more stressed, when we're becoming more anxious or when we're more angry. And so being sensitive, for example, to it could be a tightness in our stomach, it could be a tightness around our shoulders. With anger, it could be a slight tightness around our jaw or we might notice that we're breathing a little bit more quickly or we might just realise that we're feeling a little bit more hot in the situation. We all have our own stress signature, if you like, of different kind of reactions that might signal that we're becoming more uncomfortable. And if we're aware of that ahead of time, we're more likely to be able to check that. And one of the ways also we can help prevent, say, a more extreme emotional hijack is if we know a situation is a conflict situation, for example, with someone else, the tensions are building up, we can take a bit of time out from the situation. We can curb that and not just keep on going where we're more likely to lose our call or something like that. But in the first instance, it's being aware of those internal cues and then having some strategies to lower our arousal level. Well, just briefly, Dad, it might even be worth going over one or two of what those strategies could be because it strikes me that that is a a really central thing in terms of being able to lower our arousal in those situations. So what are maybe one or two ways that we could regulate our emotions? Okay, one of the main ways initially is to take some pause in a situation rather than just react. That helps. Then what we might do next, if we recognise a degree of tightness or tension in our body, for example, is slowing our breathing. That's one of the most helpful things that we can do. And sometimes we might even use a word or phrase to help ourselves calm down in a certain way. But basically we're looking to help ourselves settle before we react. And just as one example how we can do that proactively... We've talked at times about the benefit of, for example, relaxation techniques or mindfulness techniques, even yoga, meditation. This is an example of how even a simple breathing technique, which is a calming technique as well, can help us in advance. As Daniel Goleman was describing, if people do a simple 10-minute exercise, a breathing exercise in the morning, of breathing in to a count of three and breathing out, slowly to a count of three, doing that for about 10 minutes. There are any number of combinations of counting, like breathe in to four, out to four, something like that, but just something as simple as that. If people do that for 10 minutes, then later in the day, if they're doing an important task, they're more likely to follow through better on that task and perform it better because they're less distractible. And the reason is that 10-minute exercise in the morning, it doesn't only help people focus better at the time, but it has a lingering effect. And it probably leads to people having fewer intrusive thoughts when there might be some kind of disruption or distraction and people are able to get back better to the task. So something as simple as that, 10 minutes, can have an impact later in the day. But even if we think of that in the shorter term, if people are in any situation that they're finding challenging, just simply to slow our breathing can help. Slowing down, maybe thinking, what do I want to do here? Or what do I want to say? Like giving yourself 
those few moments to organise yourself, again, that's more likely to help you keep your frontal lobe switched on rather than getting hijacked by your limbic system. And this is something we might even expand on a little bit next week too because it'd be good to chat about some of this sort of stuff, maybe a bit more in the context of children, Dad. And I know we had a bit of a chat about some exercises too, which are great for kids. And although they seem maybe a little bit maybe infantile to go through them with an adult, like I found going through them in, oh, I suppose, maybe simplified terms as we would with children. Like it helps to almost look at things in, in those terms. So uh, maybe, yeah, we'll, we'll touch back on this topic again next week, Dad. But if we now move on to empathy and awareness of others, which is the third component of emotional intelligence, because this is one that we hear really come up often these days. So do you want to just maybe give us a bit of a sense in this context, what does empathy and awareness of others relate to? Okay, well, empathy is mainly about being attuned to other people's feelings and their needs and interests. So basically, it involves an interest in other people and treating them with a level of kindness and compassion. And there are actually a few different types of empathy which relate to different kind of brain activity as well. And one type is a kind of cognitive empathy. So that's basically a cognitive understanding. I've got a sense of why this person might be acting in that way. This might be something of what they're feeling or this might be their interest or concern in this situation. And it can be more of a, again, a cognitive understanding. Another kind of empathy can be where you feel something very similar to what the other person feels. Like they might have a certain emotion and you're picking up on that using our mirror neurons. So our mirror neurons in our brain help us mimic, if you like, or reflect or experience something similar to what the person before us is experiencing. Then there can be the empathic concern of the type that goes, for example, with being a parent, where you might have that loving interest to try and help your children or help others in a particular kind of way. So each of these different types of empathy are important for our relationships. And they all involve being attuned to other people's needs. Well, it's interesting hearing them broken down into those three contexts. Like, as I said, like you hear the term empathy so much, but you don't even necessarily hear it spoken about in those terms. But I heard something really recently with empathy, Dad, which I suppose struck me as to potentially the complexity of how maybe difficult even empathy can be uh, I suppose in its, in its truest form at times, in terms of we can all say that we're empathetic and we might all like to think that we're empathetic, but true empathy, it seems to me, is a little bit harder to achieve. And, and I believe it was actually in uh, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. So Viktor Frankl actually spent some time in concentration camp in World War II, and he speaks about in that book when he and others were liberated from the concentration camps, they spoke to people who hadn't been in that situation, and they were looking for compassion from them. Obviously, it was, you know, one of the worst things that humans have been through in history, really, and and so they, they obviously were liberated, and they found that people would try and empathise with them, but they weren't really able to, in the sense that they would say things like, oh, yeah, the war was horrible, you know, I really suffered with bombing and, you know, it was really tough with the rationing that was around at that time. And everyone who was in a concentration camp sort of said, that just pales in comparison in terms of suffering. But it wasn't as if those people weren't trying to empathise. It was just simply that they had no concept over what the people coming from the concentration camp had been through. So in their attempt to empathise, in some ways it just showed the imbalance that they had in fact been through. 
Yes, and a number of things about that. It does suggest that unless we've had some kind of similar experience, it can be quite difficult to empathise with others. And so it would be somewhat invalidating if a person's gone through the most dreadful, for example, life-threatening experience, and someone says, oh, yes, I can imagine what that would be like, when really, to be honest about it, we can't fully appreciate something if it's dramatically different from our own experience. But we can express empathic concern for the other person and be open to their experience. And sometimes you say that as a therapist to someone. You Sometimes you hear of a person's most dreadful traumatic experience and it's more honest and real to say, look, I can't truly imagine what that would be like, but I do get some sense from you about what understandable impact it would have had on your life and I'm interested to hearing more about your experience. Like we can say something honestly like that without pretending we know exactly what it's like. But the other thing that reminds me of is many people after experiencing trauma or very difficult circumstances, including going through, for example, depression or having a significant mental health problem, a number of people say there is a silver lining to that in terms of they recognise that they have more empathy for other people. One of the most common things I hear from people who've, say, come through a very difficult time, preferably returning more to their usual well self and reflecting on it, but many people convey they've got something valuable about that experience and particularly the ability to relate to others who are going through great difficulty with more compassion. Well, that is certainly something that I can relate to. I think you maybe do need to go through a little bit of adversity to even potentially recognise that you have no concept over a situation. Like, to me, that also does strike me as being empathic. You can say, oh, look, me personally, I'd have no concept of what that would be like to feel and go through, but, you know, I'd be happy to listen to you and obviously be with you and support you. Like, there's a real element of empathy in that too, it seems. Most certainly. And again, that shows that core interest in kindness and compassion, being attuned to the other person in that way. And Dad, the last component of emotional intelligence, managing relationships. Do you want to just give us a a bit of an overview on how that relates to emotional intelligence? Yes, and one of the things there is managing our own feelings when we're interacting with others, especially in challenging situations or more heated kind of situations. So part of it is around ways of managing conflict. And we did have an earlier podcast episode that relates to this, ways of dealing with conflict. So if this is relevant to people, it could be worth going back to that one. But one of the things is managing our own feelings, especially in terms of frustrations, anger. If we have reason for some kind of concern or grievance, it's looking at how we express that in a way that could lead to a win-win kind of situation. So that high level of emotional intelligence in relation to others it's also wanting others to be able to have their concerns or interests addressed as well as our own you're looking for a win-win kind of situation so it's basically also about appreciating other people's concerns and responding to them but looking at our ways of expressing ourselves in a particular situation and being open to what others want to communicate to us And so it seems to me that those aspects that you mentioned there, like they're really good in terms of conflict management, but I wonder if there's maybe like a positive side of things that we could focus on too. Yes, there is. And look, what that comes back to is our emotions are contagious. 
So just say if we turn up to a team or a work setting and we turn up with a bit of energy, we're forward-looking, we're a little bit buoyed by it, we clearly enjoy catching up with the other people in the team, that's bringing a real amount of positive energy to the situation and that will help the team function better, it'll help the team perform better. You'll not only enjoy it more, you'll do better. So that gets back also to something that we've referred to last week in another podcast as well, it helps to put out about three positive messages to each negative message as a rough ratio. In other words, try and nudge our communication more around the positive than the negative. We can still acknowledge a frustration or we can still address a conflict, but we're nudging things towards that positive kind of energy that really does help a team, a family, a group function better. And I suppose that's where having an awareness, for example, of our emotions, like we might be feeling a negative emotion in a situation, but if we can unpack that a little bit, then it seems to me that it would be a little bit easier not to, I suppose, be controlled by that emotion in our interactions with others. Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it, the way you describe not be controlled by that emotion. That's what a lot of this is about. It's being reflective, it's being open to our own feelings and reactions, and open to the responses of others. Stepping back from a situation, acknowledging how we feel, but with our frontal lobe switched on. That's a whole lot of it. And just before we finish, Dad, I believe that there's some relevance with the character strengths here too, because as we've spoken about, it seems that we can build up our emotional intelligence through looking at the components involved in emotional intelligence. And I believe some of the character strengths are relevant to emotional intelligence as well. So do you want to just give us a bit of a brief overview, for example, what some of they are that are relevant here and and maybe how we could improve those as well? Okay, well, there are a couple of ways that I look at this. And one is broadly looking at our character strengths. So I've talked before about identifying our signature character strengths. So doing that character strengths questionnaire exercise, looking at the 24 character strengths and which ones apply most to us. Now, basically, if we've got an idea of what our top character strengths are, it might be something like perspective or use of humour or kindness or forgiveness, or persistence, if we're aware of our top character strengths, zest, whatever they are, and we look to use them or apply them in situations to deal with a challenge, or also to get satisfaction from a situation, then that awareness of ourselves is going to help our well-being, and it's going to help our performance. But similarly, our awareness of other people's character strengths can help. If we recognise that a colleague is kind, or persistent, or they have a strong sense of fairness, or they're very forgiving, or they're a real team player. These different things that we notice in them, if we can acknowledge that and reflect that back to them, that strengthens the others around us, and that's part of emotional intelligence, seeing the realistic best in other people and help draw it out. That's an important part of parenting. It's an important part of mentoring, seeing the good in others and bringing it out. But then naturally... If people do do their signature character strength profile and they identify particular ones, there are some that naturally would lend a particular advantage to emotional intelligence. One would be social intelligence, where people are picking up on the kind of motives of other people. It could be perspective. So that helps you look at a social situation in a helpful context. It certainly could be capacity to love, which is likely to lead to that empathic concern for others, which is also reflected in kindness, also forgiveness, 
So if we look at some of the specific character strengths, some of them will quite obviously lend themselves to emotional intelligence. But even things indirectly like use of humour. If we're in a challenging situation but we bring humour into it to make it lighter for others as well as ourselves in that situation, that's helpful as well. So drawing on our range of character strengths, recognising them in others. Well, Dad, it seems to me that you know, talking about emotional intelligence and what we've spoken about today, there's a real aspect to it, which what we're trying to do in, in many ways is think before we act, which is, you know, something that we hear a little bit. But, you know, if we were to just go around, I suppose, for lack of a better term, at the mercy of our emotions, if we had no way of regulating our emotions, maybe overcoming some of the negative emotions, which we do feel at times, then would be maybe a little bit more of example like a negative force in the world than we want to be like it seems to me that there's an element of emotional intelligence which is about having some longer term priorities and almost being able to act on what those longer term priorities are you know it's not as if as I say we're at the, the mercy of our emotions and just acting on a whim at all times it is almost like we are able to have a bit of a sense of what's going to be better for us in the longer term. Yes, well, as you describe that, I think that gets at the notion of there's also a spiritual dimension in life which gets at our most deep motives and feelings and values, and we know that that helps our well-being, and that does involve long-term views, and it most certainly involves thinking about the well-being of others. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a little bit more of a chat next week about it in terms of we'll maybe have a, a few more strategies out there for parents and chatting about some stuff to do with children as well. But I think it actually is really helpful to look at it in terms of children and maybe those simplified terms because there's a few little exercises and stuff too which I think make the point really well about what we're talking about today. Yes, I think so too. When we think about what might make sense to children around these themes, hopefully it even reinforces further some of the principles that we brought up today. Well, we'll put all the resources for today's episode up at sykespiels.com.au. But thanks so much, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Look forward to it, Rowan.